Go ahead and grab a Bible and open to Genesis chapter 47. If you didn't open with David to chapter 50. If you did, go back a couple chapters. We'll be walking through the last few chapters of the book of Genesis tonight. We've been talking on our Sunday nights from way back in late September, on the nights I've been up here anyway, about the life of Joseph. God has given us so many great lives in Scripture that make us stop and think about these people that had the same number of hours in the days we have, who face the same types of challenges we face, and, and God wants us to know about them or He wouldn't have put them in there. And I've said several times through the years, God hasn't made a children's section of the Bible and an adult section of the Bible. Uh, sometimes we're not careful. We study these lives in our Bible classes as kids, then we don't talk about them as much as maybe God wants us to as we get older. So it's helpful to me and hopefully helpful to you to take some time each year and just walk through some of these lives at a slower pace trying to soak in the details God has given us. And I haven't counted how many lessons we've had. My guess is somewhere around 9 or 10. Uh, but tonight we're going to finish up the life of Joseph, a study that I've enjoyed and I hope you have as well. This is the book we've been reading along with it. Um, I'd encourage you, if you like to read things like this, Swindoll's book is a good one. You'll see if you get, do get a chance to read through it. He's got more chapters than we've taken lessons. He'll often take a different angle at things than we have done in the lessons so I still think it's worth your time if you have enjoyed the study of Joseph to maybe make your own study of Joseph by uh, reading through Swindoll's book. Or even better, making your own study of Joseph by reading through the book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 37 through 50. Hope you can read through it again and maybe some of these things we've talked about uh, will have sunk in. Joseph's life is a hard one to beat from the standpoint of studying somebody's life. There's just so much here about family, about tragedy, about faithfulness, about rising above your past, about redemption, forgiveness. There's just so many great themes that pour into the life of Joseph. And tonight, as you've noticed, we've called this last lesson Legacies. I don't think it's a coincidence that when you get to the New Testament, almost 2,000 years after the life of Joseph, you still find a lot of people who are naming their kids Joseph. <laughs> probably not a coincidence that the, the father of Jesus, the one who was charged to raise Jesus, his parents at some point had named him Joseph. At some point, Joseph and Mary, when they began having their own kids after Jesus, named one of those boys Joseph. At some point, Joseph of Arimathea, the one who you remember took Jesus' body, laid it in a tomb. Someone, his parents, decided to name him Joseph. Very popular name. Almost 2,000 years after his life, there's a lot of names in the Old Testament that were not popular names as time went on because they didn't leave the type of legacy you'd want to name your kid after. But Joseph did. And so tonight as we, we pull it all together, we're going to see the final chapter of Jacob's life, Joseph's dad. We're going to see the final chapter of Joseph's life. We're going to walk through some highlights of these last few chapters of Genesis that tell us about those. And then we'll have three final lessons that I hope we'll bring together the life of Joseph. So that'll be our study tonight. As always, I've divided these into several sections. I've got it there on your outline. The first section, let's talk about Joseph's legacy in Egypt. Before we get to his legacy in faith and life and all that stuff, let's just talk about what he left behind in Egypt. Because Joseph changed Egypt forever, <laughs> at least for that period of time. Uh, Joseph left Egypt far different than it was when he got there. It was already a powerful nation. But remember, God had given Joseph the ability to read the dreams that there was going to be these years of famine, and so they had saved up for him. 
And here's what, what happens. I don't read all those verses. I'll put a few of them up here. Here's what happens in this section. The people of Egypt begin coming back to Joseph year after year saying, we don't, we don't have anything. We don't have any crops again. We gave you all our money last year. So this year will you take our livestock? We'll give you our camels and our donkeys and our animals. And if you'll take our animals and just give us food. And so Joseph does that. Then they come back the next year. You remember the, the famine was bad. When Joseph's brothers came to Egypt, Joseph, you remember, told them, this is just the second year of this, guys. They'd already come twice. This is the second year of this. This famine's going to go on for five more years, he told them. And so all of Egypt comes back to Joseph again and said, we don't have any livestock. We don't have any money. And so they say, will you buy us? Will you buy us and our land and we'll give ourselves to you if you just give us food? The people were desperate. And so verse 20 in that section says, So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every Egyptian sold his field, because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. Right after that, if you have your Bible open, it says the only lands they didn't buy were the priest lands, because they were given food already every year, so they didn't have to sell their lands. But then notice the attitude of the people. They weren't upset about this. They were thankful they knew they were going to die if Joseph hadn't planned ahead to make sure that Egypt had food. So Joseph says in verse 23, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you that you may sow your land. At the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh. Notice that. That was a pretty heavy uh, tax, if you want to call it that. You know, God in the Old Testament asked for a tenth. Uh, Pharaoh asked for twice as much as that. Pharaoh wants a fifth for your seed of the field, for your food, for your households, and as food for your little ones. The idea seems to be, look, you wouldn't have anything if we didn't give it to you, so give us a fifth back. And when you zoom out of that big picture, that God has given us everything in the same way and doesn't even ask as much in the Old Testament. And the New Testament doesn't even put a number on it. Um, God wants us to give us we've been prospered. Boy, God has given us uh, everything we have. It just makes us think about about the blessings we have, makes me think about the blessings we have. But Pharaoh asked for a fifth. And the people, they don't complain. They say, you've saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. So Joseph leaves Egypt very, very wealthy, at least the government, at least Pharaoh. Pharaoh owned all the land when Joseph's life was over. Then you have Jacob's final words in these few chapters as we get near the end. Jacob had had a lot of ups and downs in his life. That's a good life study in itself, isn't it? Jacob had lied to his brother to, to uh, get the birthright. He lied to his father who was blind and sick to get the blessing. Um, he lied to Laban, his father-in-law, to run away with his, his wives and their kids. Jacob had a lot of ups and downs. But here at the end, you see Jacob as a leader as the spiritual leader that we had not seen before this. Makes me wonder, makes me wonder if maybe the, through the pain and struggle that came out of what he thought was losing Joseph, maybe there was a deepening of faith that came out of that. I don't know. But when Jacob reappears here in these last 17 years of his life, and you remember that last week, right? That was our last study two weeks ago. Jacob is, he's brought back for this great reunion with Joseph in Egypt. And you remember he was scared to leave the land because God had promised 
his grandfather and his father, this is going to be your land. He told Abraham, look north, south, east, west, everything you see is going to be yours. And here is Jacob about to leave the land to go to Egypt. And he was scared. He didn't want to leave it. And so he stopped and he's offering sacrifices and apparently asking God, God, do I really need to leave this land and go to Egypt? And you remember God told him, it's okay. This is part of the plan. Your descendants will go there. They'll be there for a while and then I'll bring them back to this land which of course would happen with Moses and with Joshua years later. But now Jacob, as he comes back, he's a leader. He wants God's blessing on him. His last 17 years of his life, he gets to spend with Joseph as a spiritual leader. And as he's about to die, look at what he says. He calls Joseph in and says, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh. You, you find that expression a couple times in Genesis. Some, there was something about putting your hand under that thigh and making a promise that made it more binding, that made it more serious. Abraham did that to his servant when he was going to go find a bride for Isaac. He said, put your hand under my thigh and promise me. Joseph, put your hand under my thigh and promise me that you'll deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Don't bury me in Egypt. I don't want this to be my final resting place. Now, did he not enjoy Egypt? Boy, it sure seemed like a great last 17 years of his life. Wasn't that at all? He wanted to be back with the family promises. He says, when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship. Remember, Israel is the other name for Jacob. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of his bed. I'm not going to read what goes on in these next couple chapters, except a little bit here at the end. But what goes on, the final words of Jacob, he calls in Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two sons he'd had in Egypt. And he gives them blessings. And then he calls in his whole family. And you know, we don't always get to have those moments. We don't get to choose a lot of times when our time comes to pass on to the next life. But Jacob seems to know his time is coming. And so he gets these very special moments where he gets to call the family in and pronounce God's blessing on each of his sons. Um, must have been special to him, not only to be able to do that, but to be able to have Joseph as one of those sons that he thought he'd lost so many years ago. And he pronounces these blessings, and they were apparently blessings from God because the things he said would come true in their lives as time would go on. But he, he gets these very special moments of calling them in, but then he tells them the same thing that he told Joseph and made Joseph promise. He charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah, he says, the field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. If you read through Genesis, you remember that. That in Genesis 23, Abraham had bought this cave when Sarah died and buried her in it. And then Abraham was buried in it. And then Isaac was buried in it. And then Rebekah. And then Leah. Rachel was not buried in it, his favorite wife, because she had died when they were out traveling around. So they buried her where she died. But there was that, apparently he felt like an open spot for him to be buried there with his dad, his granddad, his, his wife, his grandmother, great-grandmother. And so he, all, these, all these together, the ones mentioned here in verse 31, he says, that field, that cave, I want to be buried there. And when he finished charging his sons... 
He drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last. And there's that great phrase again you find in the book of Genesis. And was gathered to his people. Was gathered to his people. That great homecoming that God's people get to have. So Jacob has these last, final words. And then you have Jacob's funeral in Genesis 50, 1 through 14. It says in verse 1 of chapter 50, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. By the way, if you do read Swindoll's book, uh, Swindoll feels like he could really relate to Joseph at this point. Um, I haven't lost a parent yet. I know that's part of things that happen in life the further you go down the path. But Swindoll felt like maybe he hadn't grieved for his own dad's loss enough. And he really, he hurt along with Joseph, he said, as he wrote this passage, this chapter. Because Joseph loses his father um, after a Fortunately, a great 17 years there at the end. And he cries and he kisses him. And it says in verse 2, Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. I remember sitting in our high school Bible class. We had a teacher on Wednesday nights in high school, just a boys class. And whenever we'd be done with the lesson, or on nights where we were just so rambunctious he couldn't get control of us, what he would do is pull out some Bible trivia cards, and we'd play Bible trivia for a while. And I remember one of those questions that came up was, there are two people in the Bible who were embalmed. Can you name them? And so if you ever get the question yourself, the answer is Jacob right here and Joseph. We'll see here in just a few minutes. The only two people who were said to be embalmed. But here's something interesting I never thought about till this week. Uh, saw it, I think, in one of the commentaries, maybe, maybe a study Bible. They said that embalming was often a religious thing for the Egyptians. The priest usually did the embalming. They felt like they were preparing you for the next life in some way. But Joseph didn't ask the priest to do it, did he? He asked the doctors to do it. And we don't know if there's a distinction there. The Bible doesn't say there was, but maybe Joseph was trying to make a distinction. This is not a religious thing for us. We're just going to take him back home. We want to make sure his body stays together as best it can and holds for a long time. So we want him embalmed so we can bring him back home and bury him back home. Maybe that was the distinction Joseph was making in having the doctors do it and not the priests do it. But Jacob is embalmed. They do that for 40 days, verse 3 says. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. I don't imagine they had flags at half-staff, but if it had been done today, those flags would have been at half-staff for over 70 days, according to that passage right there. And so then they have this great procession that goes back to Canaan. Joseph asks Pharaoh if he can go. Pharaoh says, yes, go, take my servants, take my men with you. Joseph's a big deal, so when his father dies and there's a funeral, it's a big deal in the nation of Egypt as well. And so they all go back to Canaan. Pharaoh doesn't go, but the servants do. The elders of the household, the elders of the land of Egypt, all the household of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household, they left their kids and their flocks and their herds back in Goshen. They go up with chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. By the way, people have wondered what that must have looked like to the people back in Canaan, this big company of Egyptians that come in. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, and we don't know why that was significant, but when they got there, they stopped, and they cried there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation, and he observed seven days of mourning for his father. So for some reason, maybe it's just because they had just crossed the Jordan, but they stopped there, and they, they had this special seven days of crying, and it was so unique to the people of the land that they renamed the place 
Abel Mitzrayim, you see there in that verse, which means the mourning of the Egyptians. In other words, in their mind, that's the place where all these Egyptians came down one time and they just stopped and cried for a while. (laughs) They renamed the place Abel Mizraim because of that great funeral procession. And then they bury Jacob in that cave with Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah. By the way, we know where that cave is. Uh, You and I would not be able to see it today. But this is the Abraham Mosque, which is over what's now called the Cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron. Uh, If you just pull up a simple Wikipedia page on that this week, I hope you won't do it right now, but if you'll pick up pull up one uh, this week, that's an interesting read, the Cave of the Patriarchs. And what you find is all these recordings down through history where people tell stories of, this was a spot that that the Jewish people, they kept kept pretty clear. They knew this was the place they were buried, and so they, they took care of it. You see these drawings of it. You hear stories of people going down. I remember there were several in the 1100s saying, I, I got to go down the steps. And the third cave, they would talk about, the third cave, you could see there the bones of those six great people of Israel, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Leah. At some point, at some point, the structure got bigger and bigger that they built over it. About 2,000 years ago is where they started building. When Islam began growing and the Muslims began taking over parts of the promised land, as, as some of the Jews thought about it, this is one of the areas they took over. You notice it's now a mosque, an Islamic mosque. It's not associated with Judaism. I, my understanding is Jews can't go in it except for just a couple days a year, and then they can only go down to like the seventh step or something like that. Uh, so this is in Islamic control. So you've got to be Muslim and really, really important to be able to go down in the, the caves to see those bodies. But apparently they're still there. And, uh, and the stories through time has, have told us that. So that's interesting. Just one of those little things that reminds us. The Bible's not telling stories about a galaxy far, far away. The, the Bible's telling us stories of men and women that, that lived here and, and really, really did the things here on this earth that we're trying to do for God even today. So Jacob is buried. Just a couple things then left in chapter 50. The brother's fear and Joseph's kindness. This is interesting to me. We've seen Joseph's brothers hang on to their guilt before. Uh, Here they're acting out of fear. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? I wonder how it came up. Was it on the trip back from the funeral? Was it sitting around the house at night when they got back? Somebody spoke up and apparently all felt that way. What if Joseph's been holding it in these last 17 years? And what if now that dad's gone, he's going he's to take care of us because we're the ones that tried to kill him so many years ago. So they make up a story. Sounds like it's made up. They send a message to Joseph. Sounds like they didn't go themselves to start with. but They start by sending a message says, your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So the message came. Apparently they didn't didn't go and talk to him. By the way, I bet Joseph could tell I don't know this, 
But I imagine Joseph could tell that his dad didn't really say this. Um, to Joseph's credit, he doesn't argue about that. A lot of us would have. A lot of us would have said, Dad didn't say that. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. And that, and that would have started a fight all in its own. Joseph doesn't play that game. When Joseph hears about their fear that he's going to do something to him when Dad's gone, he doesn't argue over the little stuff. He cries. He cries there at the end of that verse, in verse 17. And then it goes on, it says, Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. And I love Joseph's answer here. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Don't forget, revenge is God's job. Who needs to be lifted up and brought down is God's job. Joseph says, I'm not God. And even if I felt anger towards you, I'm not God to try to take out God's job and, and perform judgment on you. And then verse 20 echoes what he said back in chapter 45. He says, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. One of the great verses in all of Genesis and all the Bible. God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Remember Joseph, even back in chapter 45, he noticed this. That somewhere along the way he realized, we would have died in that famine if God hadn't got me here to Egypt. If God hadn't found a way for Abraham's family to get to Egypt, the promises never come true. But God could see far enough to know that this needs to happen. And Joseph's able to see that here. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So therefore, do not be afraid. I'll provide for you and for your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And once again, when they're the ones that have done wrong and feel guilty about it, it's Joseph comforting them. You've seen that throughout his life, haven't you? There's a kindness in thinking about other people. He did it when he was in prison. He was thinking about the, the butler and the baker when they were so sad. Joseph's able to look beyond himself and care about other people. We've got to be able to do the same. Then the last thing in this section tonight that ends the book of Genesis, Joseph's last days. It says, Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. You remember, by the way, his dad lived 147 years. This isn't the time when lifespans are getting a little shorter, so maybe that shouldn't surprise us. But Joseph got to see his grandkids, got to see his great-grandkids on Manasseh's side. And it says in verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, it sounds like Joseph died first, or at least died before the others all did. He says, I'm about to die. But God surely will take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God's not done. God's not done. The land's still going to be our families. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. He would not stay in a coffin in Egypt, because as he just said, he asked them to take his bones back up. So another Bible trivia question you'll want to know. Whose bones did Moses take with them when they went out of the land of Egypt? Joseph's. You see that in Exodus 13, as they're going out of Egypt, verse 19 says, they took the bones of Joseph with them. He'd been embalmed. I have no idea what shape his body was in after 400 years, but he had been embalmed, and they take him on back to, to the land of Canaan. And after they've conquered the land of Canaan, at the very end, in the last chapter of the book of Joshua, it says they buried Joseph 
there in the, the place that Jacob had bought from the people of Shechem. I wonder, if they, I wonder if they said a few words when they buried him. I wonder if someone stood up and told the story of his life. I wonder if someone told about how his brothers had betrayed him and how he'd, he'd been faithful to God all along the way and how he'd risen the second in command of all Egypt and how he'd helped his brothers and brought them back and how he'd saved the people and how he, he made them promise to bring him back home. I wonder if they told all that stuff that we've talked about in the last nine, ten lessons, whatever it's been. I'd like to think they did. Because this is a special end to a special life as he's buried back in the promised land that his dad had been so worried about so many years before. So pulling all that together, after spending so much time in these last 13 chapters of the book of Genesis, what are some final lessons we should take home from the life of Joseph? Number one, let's always trust that God is always working Sometimes we're like we talked about this morning, Psalm 42, verse 9. God, have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten your promises? Are you overlooking me with all the billions of people? God hadn't forgotten. God is always working. And as we mentioned even this morning, there, there's sometimes, there's a lot of times, that God's will is not done in this world. And what I mean by that is sin is not God's will. Sometimes people die and we say, well, that was God's will. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe it wasn't. Maybe that was Satan. Maybe that was sin that caused all that. But God still sits on the throne, and God can bring His will in the big picture. In the end, God's will will be done in the end. But God can bring it together for His will. For example, I saw this last week, um, that a, another child had been shot in, in a shooting here in Memphis. Is that God's will? I don't think so. I don't want to speak for God, but I don't think so. But can God bring good things out of that? Perhaps. Perhaps God's allowing that, child, that child's soul to be saved when maybe it wouldn't have been if it had grown on up in the type of context it might have grown up in. Uh, maybe God can bring good things out of it. I know God can bring good things out of it. Was it His will? I, I don't want to speak for God. I know evil and sin are not God's will. But God sits on the throne and His will will be done in the big picture. And one of the great phrases in all of Scripture, those two simple words, but God... Because so many times, people or Satan mean evil to be done in this world, but God brings it a whole different direction. Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's a great study all in itself. But Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you were dead in your sins and transgressions and all the bad stuff that went through that, but God, but God. He gave us life in Jesus Christ. God is always working. He's always working. And it's worth saying one more time what we said throughout this series. We only get to see the end result of God's working if we stay with God. It makes me, it makes me sad for myself and for all of us to think about what blessings might have been missed by the times we've, we haven't trusted God. By the times we thought, boy, God's, things just aren't coming together the way I thought they should, so I'm just going to do it my own way. Or I'm going to sin, I'm going to go Satan's way or my way. When God had something great prepared, God had much more to give us than that. But we jumped off the ship before it could come home to port. Joseph stayed with God through so many times that we would have quit. And since he stayed with God, God brought a plan together that had to be bigger than anything Joseph could have possibly dreamed for himself. And went even beyond his life as, as the, the whole children of Israel were saved through him. We would be brought back to Canaan 
as a result of his life. God can bring so many things together. In that great passage, Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things not to be good, but to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Joseph leaves a great legacy of allowing God to work by staying faithful to him along the way. Number two, let's rise above what the book called, and I like this little phrase, the tyranny of bitterness. You probably know somebody, maybe more than one somebody, who has let all the bad things that have happened to them in life change their personality for the worse. They've spent so much time thinking about the what should have beens or the what should have been difference and the people who hurt them and the bad breaks they got and they've let it consume them to the point that they're filled with anger and, and, and probably fear mixed in there too. A bitterness toward life that leaves them the worse in a lot of ways, but especially spiritually. It amazes us that Joseph was able to rise above all that. Because you, when you just list the things he went through, any one of them would have tempted us to become bitter at life. Maybe bitter at God. And for Joseph to have a faith that hung in there in spite of that is absolutely amazing to us. Hebrews 12, 15 warns us about that. He says, don't let any of you come short of the grace of God. Okay, I don't want to come short of the grace of God. I, I don't want to fall away. Don't, then don't let a root of bitterness spring up inside of you. We've probably all seen marriages that have fallen apart because someone or both someones let a root of bitterness get so hold of them they didn't want to work on anything anymore. We've probably seen souls fall apart because they let a root of bitterness get such a hold of them they didn't want to come back to God anymore. We've seen so many people, and maybe have been tempted ourselves, to let those bad breaks in life put down roots of bitterness in our heart toward people, toward God, toward the world. Let's not do that. And if you see that starting to happen to you tonight, back off of that. Pray about that. Don't let bitterness become part of who you are because it'll change you for the worse. I don't see anything in the Bible that says bitterness produces anything but bad things in the sight of God. Pray about whatever is tempting you to be bitter tonight. Because we want to be more like Joseph. Joseph leaves a great legacy of not being bitter. How do you do that? How do you not be bitter? I don't have all the answers. Let me give you a few brief ones I think are scriptural. Let's try to be thankful more than we are pointing out the things that are bad. As the song says, let's try to count our blessings rather than just count the things we don't like about our life. Let's try to remember that we've been forgiven by God and so we want to pass along the forgiveness that God has given us. Let's try to remember that God has something better planned for us up ahead. So it's not worth looking backwards at all the things we, we should have had or think we should have had or think we deserved. Let's, let's remember some of those things. Let's remember that a life that's lived faithfully for God is worth far more than whatever accomplishments or attention we think we might have earned had life taken another path. Let's not look backwards so much. Let's, let's keep moving forward in hope, as we've talked about so much this year, and not let bitterness put roots down in our hearts. Romans 12, 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Then the last thing I hope we learn from the life of Joseph. Let's be sure we end well. 
Think about jo- or Jacob. Let's start with Jacob first. All the bad things he did, lying to his brother, lying to his old sick father, lying to his father-in-law. If his life had ended at several points, his legacy would not have been a good one. But what's amazing is he turns back into this faithful leader of God. He turns back into someone who's pronouncing blessings for God, who's worried about the promised land, who's worried about the promises that God had given his fathers. And his legacy is a good one at the end because he ends well. What if Joseph had hung with God through all the stuff he went through, but then at the height of all he had in Egypt, what if he'd turned away from God? What if he'd decided he had all the money and stuff he wanted, and so he was just going to serve the Egyptian gods from then on out? We wouldn't think of him the same way. Jesus' father would probably not have been named Joseph, one of many small little things that would have been different. The legacy would have been entirely different, but he stayed faithful. Many people start well, and end poorly spiritually. We don't want to be that. Many people start poorly, but end well. If we started poorly, if we're in a bad spot spiritually tonight, don't stay there. End well. That affects so much about our legacy. We think about Hebrews eleven four and passages like it. That remind us that when we live in faith, even though we passed on, our life keeps speaking. We're still saying something to the people that knew us, to our family. And those are the most important legacies, the one that speaks spiritually. And our legacy, one way or another, we're going we're gonna to move our family, our friends, people that know us. We're going to move them a little closer to God, or we're going to move them a little farther away based on how we decide to live between us and God. Let's make sure that you and I are going to end well. And the only way to end well is to try to be right with God now. Because we don't know, as Jesus told us, we don't know when that time comes, when our final breath comes. We don't always get that nice Jacob moment. I'm about to die. Let me call in the people I need to talk to and have that nice last moment with them. We don't know when that's going to happen. And so we need to make sure we're right with God so we can end well with God. Joseph left a great legacy of faithfulness to God no matter what. My prayer is that you and I can do the same. Tonight, if you're not right with God, that's the most important thing to make sure we've taken care of, all of us. And if there's something that's holding back between you and God, if there's something in your relationship that is, should not be there, make it right between you and God. But if we can help you tonight become a Christian by being baptized into Christ for forgiveness of your sins, if we can help you tonight by praying for you about anything that's going on in your life, whether it's sin, whether it's struggle, whether it's a temptation to bitterness, whatever it is, let's all leave here tonight trying to establish a legacy of faithfulness, and that starts by making sure we're right with God right now. If you're not, let us help you tonight. If you need to respond publicly, please come to the front now while we stand and while we sing. I've heard all those stories,